Chapters twenty five and twenty six of One Life, One Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty five. Daisy's Diary in Joy. I am engaged to Gilbert Florestan. At last I understand what it is to be an engaged girl, and henceforward I shall be able to sympathize with every engaged girl in this world, of whatever nation, of whatever color whether she wears ostrich feathers and diamonds in her head at the court of st james or dances in a feather girdle on some unknown islet of the south seas whether she spends her allowance on frocks or on beads yes till i am ninety till i am cold in death i shall be able to sympathize with every lover and every loved one upon earth for now i know what love means i know that it means everything it means the colour of the sky and the brightness of the sun it means the perfume of flowers and the freshness of morning it means the balmy noontide and it means the restful coolness of green waving boughs it means lamplight at eventide in cosy gracious drawing-rooms it means blind man's holiday beside the morning-room fire it means all these for all these have double beauty and charm and comfort and sweetness since gilbert and i were engaged what will cyril think down at the bottom of this round globe when he hears that gilbert and i are to be married on the first day of the new year what can he think except that i am the lightest and most trumpery young woman he ever had the misfortune to count among his acquaintance beatrice reardon has been very nice to me she says that i have nothing to be ashamed about in the transaction it is customary it is one may say a rule of the game when people break off an engagement even if they have been engaged for years and have doted on each other all the time it is the duty of each to get engaged to somebody else without the slightest loss of time they owe this to their own dignity a girl who has the slightest self-respect will get engaged within a week after the parting even if she has to marry a chimney-sweep of course said i that is what claire does in the iron master and every one knows what a perfect heroine she was if you can just tolerate mr florestan you may consider yourself very lucky said beatrice when i heard you were going to marry him i made up my mind that he was absolutely loathsome to you did you cried i curious isn't it i really can just submit to the idea of my future existence as his wife i shall live next door to mother and that will be some consolation i meant to write everything in this diary it was to be my novel the romance of my life with all its bright colours and all its dark shadows it was to be a book to whose pages i could go back when i am middle-aged and when i am old and live again all the happiest hours of my youth and awaken echoes of old voices and vivid smiles and every thought feeling and fancy of the passing hour the wheels of the chariot roll on so swiftly when one is happy one should try at least to put a brake upon memory and for that there is only one way pen and ink yes i meant the story of my life to be complete and yet i am going to leave one little blank a little blank did i say a blank which represents the crisis of my existence the turning point between dull patience and consummate bliss i cannot write the mood and manner of my engagement that sudden passage from liberty to bondage when he took me in his arms in the arbour where we were once so miserable and called me wife wife as if we were married already absurd no doubt to the indifferent reader but the word thrilled my heart 
i cannot write of his kisses or reckon them as if they were pounds shillings and pence in the housekeeper's book i cannot write all the sweet foolishness of his talk the undeserved praises the intoxicating flatteries which he protested were not flatteries of those ridiculous moments i can keep no record perhaps if i had been let in at the gate of paradise for half an hour i should not be able to describe the heavenly garden when i came out again it is the same with that half hour in the arbour he talked and i listened and we were engaged that is my only record on the same evening however we had a very serious conversation on the terrace after dinner mother was in her favourite seat by the drawing-room window uncle ambrose was pacing the room we could see them both in the lamplight as we walked slowly up and down the evening was wonderfully warm and balmy for the end of september and the great full moon was rising behind lamford church tower this being the third moon we have worn out since we left london we talked of the moon a little and he quoted shelley whom he knows as well as if he had completed one of mrs cachet's prizes and then i ventured to ask him a question which had been burning my tongue ever since we were engaged just four hours and a half it is wonderful what those four hours had done for me i felt as much at ease with him as if we had been engaged for three weeks and i began to understand the cool audacity of girls who send their fiancés on messages and make light of them in company and the free and easy manners of the motherly girls who mend their sweethearts gloves and scold them for spilling things on their waistcoats and put diachylon plaster on their wounds will you be very angry if i ask you a question i asked i should be angry if you wished to ask me anything and didn't said he being your slave what should i do please don't i cried cyril quoted that sonnet once and i was quite rude to him about it i shouldn't like you to quote anything second-hand yet it is a lovely sonnet isn't it i added apologetically for the line sounded sweet from him cyril was not in touch with my ideas about shakespeare he laughed and answered with a most unnecessary kiss you really wouldn't mind i asked from those lips all words are dear were you ever in love with anybody before you began to care for me ah i thought that question would come shall i answer it jesuitically or honestly oh honestly please be brutal to me rather than dishonest of course i am prepared for the worst you must have adored ever so many girls before you happen to let your glances light upon insignificant me ever so many that's a large order suppose i plead guilty to two i wish i had never looked at a woman or at least never wasted a thought upon one till i saw you i shouldn't if i had only known what was coming do you really think i am as nice as the other two i asked comforted by those sweet words i think you are to them as a wild rose on a hedge in the dewy morning compared with a double dahlia in the heat and dust and glare of a tent at a flower show you are as the freshness of the morning and they smelt of gas the first could not help that poor soul for it was across the footlights my heart went out to her was she very pretty i asked she was very pretty that was just fifteen years ago mark you when i was at eton she is very pretty at this present hour she will go on being very pretty i hope till the end of the century she is a burlesque actress and i saw her in the daintiest little villager's dress you can conceive dancing as lightly as a real fairy and not a stage one yes daisy he said gravely 
i plead guilty to being over head and ears in love with miss millicent melville of the hilarity fifteen years ago for the whole space of the christmas holidays i was stone broke for her sake and spent all my tips upon theatre tickets hothouse flowers and chocolate caramels i delivered the flowers and the caramels to the surly stage doorkeeper who may have sold them to the minor members of the troupe for aught i know i never got speech of my hurry and i was heartbroken when i discovered upon unimpeachable authority that she had a husband and five children how she did it how she looked so lovely and sylph-like and childishly innocent with an eating and drinking smoking and swearing man and five brats to work for i have never been able to understand was she number one i asked yes she was number one in that case i forgive you your first love and now tell me about your second that is a graver case daisy i cannot make light of that infatuation cupid did not assail me with paper pellets that time his arrows were barbed and the barbs were poisoned i loved a woman who was unworthy of my love daisy i passed through the scathing fire of a wasted passion you loved her as well as you love me i asked feeling just as if i had dropped from a paradise in yonder moon down to a hard cruel earth all my gladness perished in one gasping sigh i felt sure he had cared more for her than for me i'm afraid i must plead guilty to having loved her very dearly while my love lasted daisy but the cure was a clean cure there was not so much as a scar left from the old wound by the time i met you in paris and from that hour i was yours and yours only and if i had not broken with cyril what would you have done dragged on my roaming desultory life and suffered the dull agony of an empty heart were you really unhappy in scotland in spite of grouse and salmon in spite of as fine a stag as was ever stalked which this hand slew the day before i casually heard that arden had sailed in the big new steamer for colombo and would you not have found some new divinity before christmas it was delightful to have him there and to be able to catechize him yet i could not help being savagely jealous of that unknown love the number two in his calendar i could not but feel that it was nice of him to tell me the truth even at the risk of offending me for life tell me about that second flame of yours i said agonized with curiosity was she very lovely she was splendidly handsome a woman whose diamonds seemed more brilliant than those of other women because they so harmonized with her bright beauty i was among many worshippers and i happened to be the most eligible of her adorers from a matrimonial point of view and so she was gracious to me and so i was her slave did she jilt you i asked for there was a bitterness in his tone which assured me the dear creature had treated him abominably i could have hugged her for it well it was hardly a case of jilting if i were to write my story i should call the book illusion and disillusion i was fortunate enough to find her out before marriage instead of afterwards my innocent little daisy can hardly guess what a world of misery that discovery saved me i don't want to guess i said but there is one thing i should like to know gilbert i blushed in the moonlight and trembled at my own audacity as i pronounced his christian name i had my arm through his and found myself giving his arm a gentle squeeze now and then just to make sure that he was real and that all the ecstasy of this hour was not a moonlit dream ask as many questions as you like fair fatima 
there is no blue chamber in my memory of which you may not open the door it does not pain you to speak of that wicked person not a whit no more than it would pain me to talk of cleopatra but at the time of your disillusion did love die all at once or by inches love died in an hour but there was something the memory an aftertaste of passion which was plaguily long a dying is it dead yet i asked frightened dead as a door-nail dead as scrooge's partner old marley deader for no ghost of that vanished feeling will ever haunt me i was heart whole the night i met you at the grand opera and from that night i was your slave oh that is nonsense cried i you could not have cared for me all at once a commonplace english person like me what was there in my poor face to catch your eye innocence truth candour the virtues which make man's life happy and honourable i saw poetic loveliness and through that transparent beauty i saw the true and pure heart of girlhood a heart of virgin gold flawless above price don't don't i cried standing on tiptoe to put my hand upon his lips this last illusion is worse than the first and second how can i ever live up to such an ideal as you have made out of me only love me daisy there is no more to do oh that comes too easy i did that before i was asked mother's voice calling us from the open window put an end to our confidential talk but my heart was quite at ease now that i knew the history of his earlier loves if he had told me he had never been in love before he saw me i should not have believed him and i should have been tortured for all the years to come by inextinguishable distrust all this happened nearly a month ago though i couldn't bring myself to write about it before to-day and perhaps i should not be writing now if gilbert had not been obliged to go to london to see his solicitor our first parting leaving me to get through the day somehow without him the grounds look so dreary the shrubberies seem so empty and oh what ages to eight o'clock dinner when he will be back twenty six daisy's diary in sorrow when i wrote the last line in this book i think i must have been the happiest girl in the world there was hardly a cloud upon my sky yes one cloud the fact that the man whom i thought my friend and benefactor was out of health and unhappy yet in spite of that one cloud i was utterly happy selfishly absorbed in my new happiness to-day i take up my pen in fear and trembling a dark and terrible cloud has closed over my life i thank god that cloud does not rest upon my lover's head he stands out in the sunshine and all my thoughts of him are full of thankfulness and delight but i can no longer be the selfish self-absorbed creature i was when i wrote those last foolish pages giving myself up to this dumb confidant as i could do to no living being i must think of others now this dark discovery forces my thoughts into other grooves i must remember that i am my mother's daughter as well as gilbert's affianced wife oh it is all so sad so awful such a cruel revelation changing the whole colour of life stripping off the mask from a face that was once honoured and beloved opening a deep well of baseness and iniquity in the flowery garden world where i was so happy to me it was as startling and sudden and blighting to come face to face with that great wickedness as it would have been to eve in eden if the ground had opened at her feet and showed her a charnel-house there in that fair world where she had never heard of death 
sometimes for a few moments i doubt and i ask myself if i am not deluded if that hideous suspicion which grew in an hour into absolute conviction might not after all be groundless and then i go over the facts slowly in cold blood one by one carefully putting them together again like the pieces in a puzzle and there the awful fact appears in unmistakable certainty oh father father how that trusting open nature that generous heart of yours was cheated how coldly deliberately and heartlessly your life was plotted away by the man who sat at your table and smiled beside your hearth and was to you almost as a brother it was your own familiar friend who planned your murder i must go back to the moment when this hideous secret revealed itself it was natural that as gilbert's fiancee i should tell him everything that had happened to me in all my life and indeed i fear that i must have bored him sadly since we were engaged by prattling to him about every detail of my insignificant existence my lessons my boat my playfellows and friends i don't believe i have spared him a single doll certainly not a favourite doll nor a single nursery anecdote nor a single family joke he has been told everything two days ago he came into the drawing-room just as it was growing dusk he had been to london again and we had had another parting and i had felt very mopey all the afternoon more especially as mother had gone off on her weekly round to hear her weekly tale of woes and illnesses i did not expect to see gilbert until dinner-time and oh how my foolish heart thrilled with delight when i heard his step in the hall just after the clock struck five it is not very often that i have the privilege of making tea for gilbert and on this occasion i am sorry to say i made it so strong that it was hardly drinkable i saw he made a wry face at every sip though he declared it was quite the nicest tea he had ever tasted and even chivalry did not enable him to empty his cup was it metternich or some other great diplomat who sipped a glass of castor oil with every sign of relish because his host had offered it to him as particularly fine toquet i asked him laughing at his self-sacrifice and then i rang and ordered some chocolate a la vanille which our butler makes to perfection you poor victim of soft-heartedness i said why didn't you tell me that the tea was horrid i overreached myself in my endeavour to make it especially good so that you might have a high opinion of my domestic capabilities i like strong tea he answered but certainly yours is fortissimo i fancy a good-sized pot of such stuff would serve to blow up the houses of parliament how gay we were as we sat and talked and laughed in the growing dusk with our feet on the marble curb crooning over the fire like john anderson and his old wife how proud i felt of my lover and how blissful in the assurance that he was all my own that i had left no corner of his heart unexplored no secret hidden from my prying eyes we sipped our chocolate which was really delicious what superior creatures servants are if i had attempted to make that meunier a la vanille i have no doubt the result would have been odious as dear mr toole says in the upper crust we sipped our chocolate and talked and talked not from grave to gay but from gay to grave and presently i told my dearest the single secret of my life the one act of mine which i had hidden from the best of mothers i told him how when i first went to london i was haunted by the ghastly vision of my father's murder and how a morbid longing to see the room where that dark deed was done took possession of my mind and would not be driven away 
i told him how i crept out of the house in the summer twilight and described every step in that dismal pilgrimage till i came to church street on my way home and then i told him of that intolerable frenchman's insolence and of the good creature in the handsome to whom i should so like to leave a legacy when i am old enough to make a will if i only knew his honourable name i know my enemy's name well enough said i for as the cab was driving off with me his friends called out to him hola du verdier du verdier cried gilbert starting as if he had been shot great god in heaven why that is the name of the man i believe to be your father's murderer in the next instant he seemed to regret having spoken but i would not let him take back his words i made him tell me all he knew or thought or suspected about my father's cruel death and stage by stage i got the whole story out of him it was slow work for he was sorely disinclined to tell me anything now that i know something i must know all i said when he refused to answer my questions and so little by little i heard the whole story my mother had asked him to help her in tracing out a girl whom my father admired and had half a mind to marry before he had ever seen mother's face she appealed to gilbert counting on his knowledge of parisian life and he had succeeded beyond his hopes up to a certain stage but just as he had put his hand as it were upon the brother of this frenchwoman whom he believed to be the so-called watchmaker in denmark street the man left paris leaving no clue to his destination i could do no more than leave the case in the hands of the parisian police who have a strong motive for finding your father's murderer if he is above ground said gilbert of course my reasons for believing this to be the man are in a measure conjectural but the circumstantial evidence is strong the man who murdered your father was a man who knew the story of your father's youthful love affair and was able to use the french milliner's name as a decoy it is known that morel was in london with other communists at the time of the murder it is known that he was heard of at madrid soon after the murder and that he was then flush of money for my own satisfaction i have convincing proof that this duverdier is the man claude morel but it is not such proof as could be produced in a court of justice the evidence that convinced me was the evidence of a woman's face and then he told me how he had met morel's sister and had taxed her with her identity with the girl whom my father once loved her emotion at the sound of my father's name was pitiable her agitation when he accused her brother of the murder was terrible after that interview he had no doubt as to the guilt of the man now known as leon du verdier the one missing link in the chain of evidence is the means by which the knowledge of your father's movements on that fatal day was transmitted to the murderer he must have had an informant if not an accomplice either in the immediate vicinity of this house or in the lawyer's office where the hour and the nature of his appointment may have been known to the clerks a deadly chill crept through my veins as he said these words i was glad of the growing darkness which hid my face from him i was glad that i had deferred the lighting of the lamp so as to prolong our blind man's holiday i sat silent motionless paralyzed by the horrible suspicion which filled my mind some one at lamford must have given the information that enabled the murderer to plan his crime who could that someone be unless it were the familiar friend the confidant of every enterprise and every idea of my mother and father my mother has told me in answer to my questions that no servant in the house knew where my father was going or what he was going to do that day the conversation at dinner on the previous evening had not touched on the business part of the transaction 
my father had been full of the landscape gardener's plans and the talk had been wholly of the terraces and the arboretum of levelling and planting and laying on water for fountains and greenhouses all that was known in the household on that evening or on the following morning was that my father was going to london and was to return before dinner yet some one had furnished such precise information that my father's murderer was able to meet him midway between the bank and the lawyer's office who was that accomplice or worse than accomplice of the murderer since the idea of murder might never have entered claude morel's mind if some one knowing my father's affairs had not told him how large a sum of money might be gained by that crime who could that secret assassin that worse than murderer be but the man whose footsteps were now dogged by the shedder of blood who but that man whose face bore in every line the marks of an unextinguishable remorse the man whom i had seen shrinking away with horror-stricken countenance from the room where my father used to sit and where his guilty conscience may have conjured up the shadow of the dead his friend his generous confiding friend oh god what a depth of iniquity to have deliberately planned that cruel murder to have plotted the crime which a vulgar assassin was to execute to have waited and watched for the opportunity perhaps to have tempted and persuaded the assassin against some remnant of better feeling some instinctive shrinking from bloodshed some scruple of conscience and to have been with us day by day after that devilish act our friend our consoler till at last trading on a woman's gratitude for fancied benefits he put forward his claim to the wife of his victim and possessed himself of the object of his wicked love possessed himself yes thank god i know that my mother never loved him that she gave her life up to him as if in payment of a debt sacrificing herself to reward the fidelity of a life-long friendship god keep her from the horror of knowing what i know my long silence made gilbert uneasy about me and he was full of tender sympathy thinking that our conversation about my father had renewed an old grief mother came in while he was consoling me and the lamps were brought and i had to put on a cheerful countenance somehow for her dear sake and by and by i had to sit down to dinner with that judas and still to play the hypocrite i could hear the sound of my own voice as i talked and it had such a false tone that it jarred upon my ear oh the horror of that hour in the drawing-room when mother asked me to play some of those quaint old variations she and i are so fond of and when i sat before the piano and played like a machine while ambrose arden walked up and down with soft cat-like step and now and again paused and stood behind me for a few minutes and once even laid his hand upon my shuddering shoulder my whole being was one sense of horror and revulsion i could scarcely breathe while he was so near me yet i went on playing somehow always like a machine poor mozart you are not in your usual form to-night daisy said gilbert who pretends to think a great deal of my playing and then he came over to me and bent down to look into my eyes and talked to me ever so sweetly and his dear presence exorcised the demon and that guilty wretch walked slowly away and went on with restless prowling to and fro to and fro like a spirit in hell the hell of guilty memories and gnawing thoughts the hell of the traitor and murderer that hell within the soul of man which made judas hurl back his fatal thirty pieces upon his tempters and rush out into the field and destroy himself where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched that is the hell which ambrose arden has made for himself 
i went on playing while gilbert went back to the other end of the room where he had been sitting with mother and challenged her to a game at chess i was alone in the shadowy corner by the piano and as i played i watched that tall slim figure with the bent shoulders moving slowly to and fro with a gliding motion since this awful truth has revealed itself i seem to see ambrose arden in a new light as if i had been blindfolded before and had made for myself an image of the man and coloured it with my own colours the face and figure i watch to-night are new and strange and the signs of a guilty conscience the indications of a crafty and double nature seem to me now so strongly impressed upon every look and movement of the man that i tell myself i must have been blind all this time or i could not have missed this secret it is there written upon his brow the very brand that scared the forehead of the first murderer cain what a relief it was to be alone at last yes even a relief to bid good-night to gilbert and mother and to lock the door of my own room and to sit by the fire face to face with the grim and hideous truth i wanted to think out my horrible idea to arrange all the facts which seemed to constitute such damning evidence against my stepfather to try if i could not acquit him or at any rate write not proven against his crime alas no after long hours of thought after a long winter night without one interval of blessed sleep my reason still condemns him in my mother's second husband in the friend and teacher of all my early years the man to whom i owed so much in him whom last of all men i should have suspected i still see the murderer of my father i recalled duverdier's appearance in grosvenor square his persistence in seeing my stepfather his look of baffled fury as he left the house i recalled his appearance in this place would any man without credentials of a guilty nature dare so to haunt a man in my stepfather's position yet this mere fact of the man's persecution would not influence me to believe in my stepfather's guilt the evidence that is to my mind conclusive is the evidence of cyril's appearance and cyril's conduct upon the day when he played the listener to a conversation between his father and duverdier i saw those three figures in the lane ambrose arden and duverdier side by side duverdier talking angrily vehemently though in a lowered voice and that other figure following stealthily listening with bent brow and pallid face was it like my frank and manly cyril to play the spy upon his father's movements to creep at his father's heels and listen to a confidential conversation what could be more unlike his character as i have known it nothing but the most stringent circumstances would have forced him into such a contemptible position and within two or three hours of that scene in the lane he came to me changed and aged as if by a mortal malady and told me that all was over between us i remember almost every word of our conversation his protest that the motive of his renunciation was one which i could never know his resolution to go to the uttermost end of the earth to begin a new life to cut himself adrift from all old associations and this determination this abandonment of the whole scheme of his existence had been resolved upon since he left the rectory in high spirits the most light-hearted of men what but some awful revelation could so quickly change the whole colour of his life this is the evidence that weighs most heavily with me and next to this is the evidence of my stepfather's decay the gradual deepening of the gloom that has darkened over him in the midst of the happiest and fairest surroundings no i have no doubt now as to the brain which plotted the murder or the hand which sent the information to the murderer on the eve or on the morning of the fatal day
and my mother is this man's wife and must never know his guilt lest the horror of it should drive her mad when i think of her abiding love for my father and think how she gave herself to this judas not caring for him i am almost mad myself oh what a cheat and trickster what a prince of villains he has been to play so patient a part to sow the wicked seed at the first chance fate gave him and then to wait seven years for the harvest had he asked my mother to be his wife within a year or two of the murder her eyes might have been opened she might have suspected that he had some part in her husband's death but after seven years of tranquil self-abnegating friendship after winding himself into our hearts by every artifice of an accomplished hypocrite it seemed almost a natural inevitable development that he should change from friend to lover and that his constancy in friendship should claim its reward no the dear mother must never know this hideous secret if any power of self-repression on my part can keep it from her and so i have day after day to sit at table with the man who planned my father's death and i have to repress all signs of repulsion and to seem all that i once was to him at least in my mother's presence happily for me he spends the greater part of his existence in the solitude of the cottage over the way happily for all of us that existence is not likely to be a long one our lamford doctor who went up to london with mother and her husband to assist at the visit to the physician told gilbert in confidence that there is organic disease of the heart and that ambrose arden is not likely to live to old age End of chapters twenty five and twenty six